I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 50 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Jesus walking on water is easily one of the most classic and familiar images of this mysterious, controversial figure. In Matthew's biography of Jesus, this strange account is imbued with shocking implications. In it, we are confronted with the full gravity of who Jesus claims to be and recognize ourselves as both capable disciples and as failures, often in the same breath. Once you do have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. When I was a little kid, I loved dinosaurs. Um, And as an adult man, I love dinosaurs. Um, And when you have kids, there's this wonderful thing that happens where you get to indoctrinate them. Um, (laughs) Or at least you give it your best shot. You know, it's fun to teach them to like what you like uh, so that you can enjoy it all over again. You try, you see what sticks. Some of it does, some of it doesn't. But in this sense... Few indoctrination attempts in history have been more successful than my indoctrinating my son Beck to love dinosaurs. This joker loves dinosaurs. Um, And the interesting thing is that since paleontology is an evolving science, I have an excuse to learn new things all the time, Uh, read new books, watch new documentaries, and I I love it. It's really interesting. It's wonderful to share with him. Now, the thing about a young fascination with the Mesozoic era is that one learns in detail about the brutality of primitive life all the time. There's, you know, carnivores and famine and volcanoes and asteroid impacts and extinction-level events. So um, even as a small kid, like when my family went to Disney World for the first time, I'm from the South, so we had Disney World, um, I was most excited to ride something called World of Energy at Epcot Center, really boring ride, Um, but it had dinosaurs in it. And I knew because there was a very brief flash of them on the ads playing on television all the time back then. So here's one of those advertisements. Don't blink. Do you see them? <laughs> there's, in theory, there's some great music that goes with this as well. But you don't know what it is. But imagine that it matches the dated uh, images that you're seeing. In fact, why don't you hang out until the end because you're going to see Mickey Mouse standing on top of the golf ball and it's like, he must be just terrified for his life. <laughs> that was like the unveiling of Epcot and then we all got there and we're like, what is this? It's all educational rides. So anyway... You saw it. That brief flash was all it took. For me, all the hype about our maiden voyage as a family to Disney World, this must have been in like 1986 or something, began and ended with, can we go on the dinosaur ride? I thought it was a ride completely revolving around dinosaurs. Turns out it's not. But when we finally boarded World of Energy, and when the dinosaurs finally appeared in this boring monologue about how energy works, uh, it's like haze of fog machines and stuff, I realized something, and that was that we were all in terrible danger. Um, this is what the, they look like on the ride which is hilarious because these two animals existed millions of years apart. They would have never been in the same space, but that's fine, whatever. So I I actually, I remember bits and pieces of it, but I've heard this story all my life, my parents telling it back to me. I flung myself down into the floorboards of the vehicle screaming, they'll eat us, they'll eat us, hide, hide. 
Um, and interestingly, it's because I knew, man, I was educated. Um, and things haven't changed, actually. The same types of thing happens with my son. Last year, I was driving back out to that only so-so uh, thing that they do out the uh, event center. It's called Jurassic Quest. And uh, while we were driving out there, I was like, hey, man, are you pumped? Are you excited about this? And he said, and I quote, I'm feeling two things. And then, <laughs> and then he went on to tell me that while his excitement, this is my paraphrase now, while his excitement was considerable, he was also acutely aware of the danger of being eaten while there. <laughs> Such was his respect for the great animals. So as funny as an analogy that is, all of us know what it means for our greatest loves to become paradoxically entangled with fear. Uh, other analogies come to mind right away, things like parenthood, for example, or marriage, or even community, friendship, relationships in general. As humans, we're very complicated. We often feel, as my son said, two things at the same time. And there are times when one thing consumes the other when you wish it wouldn't or vice versa. And Matthew's gospel is filled with examples of exactly this. And because the New Testament authors are quite frank in their handling of the human condition, many readers read uh, the gospel of Matthew and stories from the other gospels and they're left discouraged. Because even the heroes of the Bible, uh, at least the human ones, the purely human ones, are all flawed. They're complicated. They're often failures. They screw up. And you can certainly read it that way and stop there. But in Matthew's story, Jesus has something to say about the paradox of who we are and where he fits into our story. So let's pick up where we left off last week and begin reading from Matthew 14, verse 22. You guys ready to get to work? Feeling all right? Great, thanks. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So tonight's story opens right where the last story closed. If you weren't here, this is that. That was the story of the crowd of more than 5,000 people for whom Jesus had provided like a miraculous meal. He healed the sick, all that. And that translation, after he had dismissed the crowds, is a, a bit formal, a bit clumsy, I think. Jesus isn't rudely sending people away like, that's it, you are dismissed. Um, one scholar I read actually translated the same exact line, when he had said goodbye to everyone. So remember, these are the same people for whom Jesus was moved to compassion at the mere sight of them. He's been healing them. He's been feeding them. He cares about them. He doesn't just suddenly say, now everyone get out of here. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 23. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now, if you recall last week's story, Jesus had, had just learned that his friend, his cousin, a noteworthy prophet of God, had been beheaded in prison under horrible circumstances. So Jesus' immediate response is to go and be alone with God. And we call this the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. But in that story, when Jesus arrives at his place of sanctuary where he had planned to have this um, important time of silence and solitude, he discovers that his sanctuary, as it were, is overflowing with people and their needs, and they all expect something from Jesus. And rather than send them away in frustration, he has compassion for them. He heals them, he feeds them, he spends time with them. But notice, in the story, Jesus doesn't shrug off his intention to practice silence and solitude altogether. It's just been momentarily delayed. And I actually find this particularly fascinating because I, and so many people I know, often approach the spiritual disciplines with a kind of idealistic all-or-nothing kind of outlook, meaning, you know, I got up to read my Bible, but then my kids spilled something, and they couldn't find their homework, so, you know, my time in the Scriptures just went out the window for the day. 
Or, you know, I hear people say, or I've said myself, man, we'd hope to have like a Sabbath day of rest for our family. But then something came up on the day. We had to run an errand. So, you know, no Sabbath this week. But in the life of Jesus, which is, you know, the one from whom we're getting all this stuff, by the way, the spiritual disciplines, the lifestyle that we're pursuing, what we've modeled, the practices around, we can see that there are times when life itself throws our spiritual rhythm, so to speak, out of orbit. If ever there was a time when it would be understandable and appropriate to be alone with God, learning of some personal tragedy, you know, the death of a family member, would certainly be one of those times. But Jesus decides that what interrupts him demands his attention. He, his plan gets wrecked, but see in the story that it doesn't go out the window altogether. It just gets rearranged. It remains a priority amongst competing priorities. So from what we can tell in the story, Jesus had planned to have time alone, time alone, not to spend the evening healing and feeding thousands of people, you know. But life threw a wrench in his plan, as life often does, something we all know well enough, and Jesus updates the plan without abandoning it, abandoning it altogether. When the interrupting work is completed, now it's time for silence and solitude. So it's a priority. Story goes on, verse 23. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat, the one with the disciples in it, was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, pause for a moment and remember where we are in the story. Matthew has begun to build out a sense of encroaching dread. Jesus is being rejected wherever he goes. John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Jesus, has been killed. There's no hint whatsoever that Jesus is mounting an uprising against Rome, which is something everyone expected him to do. Jesus' closest apprentices, the twelve, what we call the apostles, they're still in, they're still with him, but their beloved teacher has sent them ahead by boat while he's gone off to pray and be alone with God, as he often does. They're used to it by now. But while they're in the boat waiting for their teacher, a storm descends. In fact, then, in ancient Jewish thinking, the sea was a symbol of chaos and evil unrest. So in the narrative, you have these vulnerable apprentices of Jesus out on the water, a storm sets in, and the master is not there. And Matthew has drawn the reader in with these romantic, inspiring stories of healing, incredible teaching, acts of charitable goodness, and now it's as if he's provoking the reader, rejection, violence, antagonism. Now here are Jesus', Jesus closest students, alone, not spared from the sea, not spared from the storm. And of course, the story goes on. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. So let's pause for a moment. Um, <laughs> like the story of Jesus feeding more than 5,000 people with a couple of fish, a few hunks of bread, this story is hard to believe, honestly. I didn't say that it was unbelievable, but it is, in fairness, difficult for the modern sensibility to accept an ancient document that describes a man walking on water, to be clear. Ordinarily, people don't walk on top of water, so there's that. And <laughs> this story is easily among the most famous in the entire New Testament. People who don't know much of anything about Jesus know that he walked on water at some point. It's become kind of a sarcastic idiom in a shorthand vernacular, you know, like the say of some admired person, they walk on water, or, you know, as a pejorative, oh yeah, they walk on water. So we know this story. Everyone knows this story, but it's weird. And interestingly, scholars wrestle with how to best understand this account. 
Um, I read the most hilarious essays this week. One idea is something called the misperception thesis. And the idea is that Jesus was actually walking on the shoreline, but because the storm was so violent, it, it looked to the disciples like he was on the water. <laughs> and they're like, oh my God! Well, I thought it was hilarious. Other, other real theories, I kid you not, um, are something like, well, you know, maybe there's like a sandbar in the water, and he's like walking out on the sandbar. Um, still others say maybe it was more shallow than it looked, and he was kind of waiting, and it looked like he was higher than he actually was. I'm not making any of this up. They were great. Go Google it, read essays about it. It's really funny. So my point is that even among Bible scholars who don't believe in the miraculous, um, there's still an effort to figure out what is taking place, meaning that there is a recognition of the historical viability of this document, but what does it mean to say? Something must have happened, but what? Now, for you and I, let's try to figure this story out. If you're new to the Bible or the story of Jesus, then understand this. Disciples of Jesus, meaning those who follow Jesus' way of life, his teachings, who believe in what he said, for a couple thousand years now, have based the entire stake of our worldview on the single fundamental precept that Jesus died and then came back to life. One master apprentice of Jesus called Paul would go on to write later in the New Testament, if Christ has not been raised, meaning if he's not come back to life, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, meaning the people who are dead. There's no hope for them either. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Put simply, the New Testament teaches itself, no resurrection, no movement of Jesus. If Jesus did not die and then come back to life, this whole thing is a wash. In Paul's language, it is futile or pitiful. So this whole thing is based on the die-for belief that Jesus of Nazareth in a physical human body was deceased for a while. They like put him in a thing and everything. He was wrapped up. He was dead, very dead. And then God raised Jesus back to life again in a physical human body. Now to some it sounds quite crazy, understandably so, but there it is. For more on this, hang out with us on Easter. Big party, very fun. We'll do, we'll do a deep dive into the resurrection story and all that. It'll be really fun. There's my commercial for Easter. At any rate, my point is that a cataclysmic, extraordinarily miraculous event is the bedrock of this whole thing. So we do believe in what some people call miracles. Now that said, we don't approach the scriptures as if they are some kind of simplistic, black and white manual for history and life. We want to be a biblically literate people because the Bible is an ancient, complicated book written across thousands of years, um, thousands of years ago by dozens of authors across several continents and language and cultures, none of them familiar to us or our sensibilities or our paradigms, meaning in order to actually understand the Bible, we have to do a bit of work. If we approach the Bible as if everything in it is right on the surface, comprehensible to the modern Western American mind, we do, I think, a tremendous disservice and disrespect to the text. So there's this famous old slogan from Christian fundamentalism. It was on bumper stickers and stuff that said, I, th I think the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Um, and the problem with that formula is that it's missing one crucial step in the process, a step that no one can possibly avoid. The Bible says it, I interpret it, I believe it, 
that settles it. Everyone interprets the Bible. You gotta. Different language to begin with, so there's that part. Different ideas, different metaphors, different cultures, all that. There's no way around it. So all that to say, just because we believe in miracles, miracles doesn't make the story of Jesus walking on water any easier to digest, and that's fine. If everything in your experience of the world confirms humans cannot walk on water, and then you read, hey, one guy did it one time, it's okay to at the very least stop and go, huh, well, I'll be darned, you know. And one reason the story is strange is the very simple question of why? Why is he doing that? And you could answer practically, you know, the disciples are in the boat, they're scared, shortest distance between two points, a straight line, and Jesus just shrugs and says, you know, you know what, I'll just walk out there. But that would be reading the story through a lens of our Western pragmatism, efficiency, and that Jesus is, what the heck, is this my phone in my pocket making noise? I don't usually carry this thing around with me, but I had to make a uh, hot spot so that I could read this teaching off this iPad. <laughs> so forgive me. Uh, I hope that I made it be quiet before I threw it. Um, where was I? All oh, right. So uh, Jesus doesn't usually show a tremendous amount of concern for efficiency or pragmatism, in fact, to a frustrating degree. So it's very doubtful that it's that, not to mention the fact that Jesus doesn't usually do anything miraculous unless it is to help or save other people. So in fact, if you remember the story of Jesus being tempted by the devil, he specifically refuses to do miracles for the sake of practical convenience. It's a whole thing. So you've got to read this and be like, so why, why this? It's really strange. Well, remember... Nothing Jesus does is arbitrary, and nothing Matthew records is without deliberate purpose. So what's up with this weird scene? Now, bookmark Matthew for a second, and let's take a brief detour backward through the scriptures to the book of Job, of all places. Job chapter 9. If you've never wandered, go ahead, turn there. You got papers? There they go. If you've never wandered through the book of Job, it's really weird. It's, we think kind of like a play. Think of it as a bit like ancient Shakespeare, only wackier, more cameos from Satan. So in the story, this guy Job falls on severely hard times, to say the least, and he and his friends argue about why for a good chunk of the narrative. Lots of interesting stuff about God, the problem of evil, but in chapter 9, Job starts to say a few interesting things about God and God's attributes. Look down at Job 9, beginning with verse 5. Job says, God moves mountains without their knowing it, overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Now that phrase, treads on the waves of the sea, can actually be translated literally as walks on water. And interestingly enough, this passage is far from alone in describing God as the one who does walk on water. Turn with me one more time, just one book to the right, to Psalms, Psalm 77 to be exact. The Psalms, if you don't know, are a collection of ancient Hebrew poetry, lyrics about God, humanity, lots of suffering and worship, really interesting stuff. Let's read a passage from Psalm 77. When you get there, uh, look down at verse 16. The psalmist writes, The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. 
And we could go on. Let me just show you one more through a slide, an example from Isaiah chapter 51. It says, Awake, awake, arm of Yahweh, clothe yourself with strength. Awake as in days gone by, as in generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea, so that the redeemed might cross over? So there's a clear purpose in Jesus' decision to walk across the water, and it is as simple as it is profound, but let's not get ahead of ourselves just yet. Um, With all that in mind, come back to Matthew chapter 14, and let's get on with the story. You guys still all right? Great, thank you. Matthew 14, let's keep reading verse 25. So shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. It seems silly, but these, uh, you know, these young men are worried about a ghost. But remember two things. In their worldview, the sea is already evil. It's chaotic. It's monstrous. And not only that, but a storm has descended. That language that we read earlier about the wind being against their boat indicates not just like it's breezy. It's like violent turbulence. And now in the middle of all that, here comes the figure of a human walking on the water toward them. They're like, are you freaking kidding me? What the heck? Uh, My wife, Abby, is terrified of airplane turbulence, terrified, just mortified by it. She starts worrying about it at takeoff or like right before it takes off. She starts to get all rigid. It's like as if she's forgotten. And then uh, and asking questions, you think it's going to be turbulent? Oh, yeah, for sure. And then, uh, and she doesn't stop worrying until like we're off the plane. I think it's kind of fun, turbulence. You're like, whoa. So when the plane starts to rumble, she starts crushing my hand and saying, are we okay? Do you think this is okay? As if I'm an authority on air travel. And I'm answering, this is it. Brace yourself, you know. (laughs) And she starts to analyze the whole situation. She's like, but look at the stewardesses. They look so calm. I'm like, they're trained for this. They've been put through this. Um, <laughs> so recently she was actually reassured by our very own Simon Long, if you don't know who's a, a pilot. So Abby and Simon are both downstairs serving with Van City Kids because they, like all of our kids workers, are wonderfully Jesus-like human beings. God bless them and bring more of them to us. Amen. Anyway, they're down there working with the kids, um, and Abby is asking all about turbulence. She's got a pilot at her disposal. She's like, what does this mean? What does this mean? He's reassuring her. Oh, my gosh, you're so safe. Don't be worried at all. And she comes upstairs lighter than air, feeling ready for the next flight, feels so good. And I tell her, you know, they pay him to say all that. <laughs> my, <laughs> my point is... <laughs> The terror of the disciples actually makes a lot of sense. Imagine Abby on a flight. The plane, she's already scared. She had, you know, in her worldview, this is it. And uh, the plane starts rattling like crazy, and she looks out the window, and she sees a person standing on the wing. You remember that episode of Twilight Zone? Yeah, it's great. Uh, enjoy. And in the movie, actually, there's a segment that recreates the same episode. All joking aside, it's horrifying. And remember, Jesus is the one who sent them ahead in the boat. And now, where is he when we need, the, when we need him? We're, we're going to die. If you remember all the way back to Matthew 8, um, when Jesus calmed the storm, a similar story to this one, at least he was there. He was in the boat. They had to wake him up and all that, but he was in the boat. So they don't realize it's Jesus on the water, but they're about to. Look down at verse 27. Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. 
Now, before we even unpack this line, it's beautiful already. In their moment of terror, nearly consumed by chaotic evil, who should appear but the one they know that they've seen can feed the hungry, cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, even calm the storms themselves. But there's actually something more here, something staggering. Look at this. This is something called the Tetragrammaton, it's, which is Greek for four-letter word. Um, these are the Hebrew letters that make up the proper name of God, Y-H-W-H. It means something like, I am who I am, or I am that I am, or in some cases just I am, which is where we get that title for God, the great I am. Now, we pronounce the word more often than not nowadays as Yahweh, but really this is just the pronunciation most scholars think is probably best. We're not 100% sure. It's because ancient Hebrew has no vowels. So maybe you're thinking about the proper name of God and you think of this instead. Oh man, the sound ruined it. The lack of sound ruined it. Anyway, we're going to have to go back. Do you think it's going to work, Eric, or are you, are you giving up on it? Play it again, Simon. Click that thing. The name of God. Jehovah. It's great, right? It's great. It was, we bungled it a little, but it's fine. Sorry. <laughs> Funny story, actually. No one uses Jehovah anymore. Um, but when they did, there was an interesting reason. See, over time, Jewish people stopped using God's proper name. They feared that they would um, break one of the Ten Commandments that says you shouldn't misuse God's name. So they called God other names, things like Hashem, which means the name, or more often than not, just Adonai, which means Lord. So Jehovah is just the vowels from Adonai inserted into the consonants of Yahweh. <laughs> Really. And since in Hebrew, Y's sound like J's and the W's sound like V's, you get the English transliteration, Jehovah, which is what ND had to use to solve. Yeah, go check it out. Number three, lost, Last Crusade. Um, <laughs> then tell me what you think. We'll have a conversation. It's weird, huh? Anyway, the whole point is that in the Bible, God isn't just God. He has a proper name. His name is Yahweh. Anytime you see the word Lord in all caps throughout the Old Testament, that's God's proper name. Now, my Bible translates Jesus' encouragement to the disciples as, take courage, it is I. But in Greek, after saying take courage, Jesus actually only says two Greek words, I am. So having said all that, reframe the scene in your mind. The disciples are on the evil, chaotic, storm-tossed sea. Their hope, the Messiah, is nowhere to be found. But wait, there he is. And he is, in the language of the Hebrew Scriptures, that these disciples would know so well, treading on the waves of the sea, as only God does. And if this wasn't enough, Jesus speaks, and what he says is, Take courage, I am. That's insane. It's about as bold and deliberate a display as one can possibly make. Very theatrical. So reeling from the implications of all this, one scholar writes this, Jesus, I am, is not just an everyday self-identification formula. It is a divine self-revelation. This is no ordinary hello on water. It is the divine Lord addressing his storm-tossed church. The gospel of the story is in this great address. All other considerations, if this story literal or symbolic or possible or impossible, fade into the background. So how will the disciples respond? Let's keep reading. Verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. 
I love this story. It's so weird. In verse 28, my translation has Peter saying, tell me to come to you on the water, but the Greek is actually a bit stronger. It's literally, command me to come to you. So there's this very sweet, very faith-filled beauty to Peter's words. He understands that Jesus is still the teacher, still the master, and more than that. But somehow in the midst of this incredible spectacle, Peter wants to go to Jesus on the water. Here's a flawed analogy from my own imagination. I was reading this week, I saw like in my mind a group of very small children who step outside and see their dad on a huge trampoline. And he's bouncing so high in the air, it seems unreal. They've never seen a trampoline before. And all of them are buzzing with excitement and fear and astonishment. It seems incredible, otherworldly, scary. They don't want to get too close to it. But one kid's first reflex is to shout out, Dad, pull me up with you. And maybe the rest of the kids are like, shoot, you go ahead, we'll watch. Let's see if he survives. So, of course, it's a flawed analogy. It breaks down. But there is a a kind of romanticized, faith-filled beauty to Peter's request. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water, and I'll listen. Now, we don't know, of course, but I imagine Jesus smiling through the wind and the rain as he says, come. And Peter freaking did it. He was walking on the water right up to Jesus, which in context is absolutely incredible. Wasn't God the one, the only one to tread on the waves of the sea? Yes, But remember, every miraculous thing Jesus does, he does by the empowerment of God's Spirit, not because he's God in the flesh. Jesus is God actually emptying himself, becoming utterly dependent on the Father. So Jesus walks on the water, calls himself, I am, as both a declaration of his divinity and a demonstration of God's empowerment over his life. Then Peter, by Jesus' decree, can also walk on the water. And that's something... Uh, astound, an, an astounding reveal and an already incredible story that disciples of Jesus can be filled and infused with the power of God himself upon request and the gracious gift of Jesus, they can become like God. Good grief. But of course, if you know the story, you know there's actually more. Look down at verse 30. 30. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. So here's one of the apostles of Jesus, his closest friends. He is seeing at that moment with his own eyes, his master, the Messiah, and now the great I am walking on water. With a simple invitation, Peter himself follows suit. He's actually standing on water in the midst of the storm before Jesus, and even then he gets scared. Now, uh, do me a favor and rewind just a bit and look at verse 27. As Jesus approaches the boat in full glorious reveal, he says, Courage, I am. And then what is the one thing he asks of the disciples? Don't be afraid. This is the single most repeated command in the entire library of writings that we call the Bible. Don't be afraid. And then just a few lines later, Peter is out on the water himself in what was likely one of the most significant moments of his entire life. And the text reads, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Stanley Hauerwas has a great way of uh, balancing Peter's complexity. He writes, Peter is often criticized for being impulsive, for having little faith, for doubting, but such criticism should not overlook that he asks Jesus to command him to come to him. Peter begins his journey across the water toward Jesus with the recognition this is not something he can do on his own initiative. Peter's faith is little, but he at least is beginning to recognize that faith is obedience. 
Here's Peter. He begins with at least some semblance of faith, must have been in the beginning a big gesture of faith, face to face with Jesus. I am on the water and then afraid. In spite of it all, he still gets scared. Does that remind you of anyone? The story is like a mirror. Again, this from Bruner. He writes, in both stories, the church disappoints Jesus. In crises, she believes that her surroundings and resources, or lack of them, are more decisive than her Lord. She believes that the world's winds are stronger than the Lord's words. Yet, in both stories, the feeding of the 5,000 and this one, the Lord uses his faulty disciples to distribute food in one and to subdue nature in the other. Aren't these two stories, then, church history exactly? A sovereign Lord uses, enables, rebukes, and saves a volatile church. Let's keep reading. Verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Now, it's easy for someone like me to read this and note that Jesus seems to scold Peter. And though I wouldn't actually describe it as scolding, it certainly is a corrective, convicting word from the teacher. But the correction comes second. What happens first in verse 31? He saves him, right? Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Jesus rescues first, then corrects. And Jesus calls him the same, he calls Peter the same name he called all the disciples when he calmed the storm in uh, chapter 8, which is little faith. So don't miss what's happening, what's happening here. Matthew, the author of this biography, wants disciples of Jesus then and now to see that faith, even incredible faith, has little faith in it. Doubt is an inevitable component of the faith journey. In other words, even empowered disciples sink. And when you sink, he will reach out his hand and catch you. And once again, there's more here than meets the eye. Matthew's Jewish audience, we think this is primarily catered to them, would have, pass- would have passages like Psalm 18 come to mind. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of the deep waters. Or this from Psalm 144, reach down your hand from on high, deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters. Now, maybe you read the story and you think, well, sure, you know, the disciples are often depicted as clueless, as bumbling, slow to learn. But if you keep reading the New Testament, uh, they get better in a lot of ways and in some not so much. Uh, Later, this same Peter will meet Paul, who went on to author most of the New Testament. The two will collaborate in the work of the church. Incredible things happen. But in his letter to Galatians, Paul mentions a conflict, a fight that he has with Peter, which is really funny. It's like reading gossip in the Bible. Um, He says, when Cephas, which is Peter's name, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. You're reading all all these people. (laughs) When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So all that to say, imagine being Peter. 
the Peter who walked with Jesus every day, the Peter who walked on water, and here's this new disciple of Jesus who was until recently having other disciples of Jesus killed, and now he's telling Peter off in, in, to, in front of his face, in front of everyone, and for good reason, it seems like in the story. The point is, even empowered disciples sink. Keep reading, verse 32. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So don't miss this. This is really weird. Here's a man, a human being, standing in a boat, and he's surrounded by young Jewish men, all of them monotheists, meaning they believe in one God who is not a human being, and now they are worshipping Jesus, a man. It's an incredible picture. Verse 34 when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So the, the story wraps up. They land and anchor in Gennesaret, a small region on the other side of the lake, and then something incredible happens. How many of the sick are brought to Jesus? All of them, right. And how many of them are healed? All of them. And in the story, edge here, when they're talking about t touching the edge of his cloak, in the original language, it's something called a kanaf. It's like the edge of a prayer shawl, which is a garment worn by Jewish rabbis. There was a prophecy in Malachi that claimed that the Messiah would have healing powers in the edge of his cloak, in his kanaf. And remember the way, if you can think all the way back to chapter 9, um, there was a woman who had been bleeding for a long time, and she said, if I can just touch the edge of his cloak, I'll be healed, and then she was. So this seems kind of like a simple coda, like an epilogue, but Matthew is actually creating a really interesting parallel and a contrast here. And notice, just before, when the disciples were in the boat, they saw Jesus, they were afraid. They thought it was a ghost. They didn't recognize him. But as soon as Jesus lands here amongst outsiders in the story, Matthew specifically notes that they recognize Jesus. And they meet his arrival not with fear, not with panic, but with expectant faith. And this concludes what scholars call the rejection narratives. You have Jesus and the kingdom message, message rejected by his family and friends in Nazareth. It was rejected by political power and the story of Herod, who executed John the Baptist. It was rejected by the apostles when they attempted to send the hungry crowds away. And then finally, it is received amongst outsiders here in a place called Gennesaret. Now, one chapter before this one, Jesus said, he said it would be this way, almost exactly this way. He said, some seeds fall on the path and birds come and snatch them up. Some seeds fall on shallow soil and it is scorched by the sun. Some seeds fall among thorns which choke the budding plants. But some seeds do fall on good soil and germinate, grow, produce a crop. So think about the sequence of events. Jesus warns that the kingdom will not be accepted by everyone. Then Matthew, the author of this biography, shows us evidence of this in a series of case studies that mirror the parable of the seeds. Now, before you actually reach the hopeful coda, you need to understand something. This is not a moral teacher with an interesting take on the world. This is the one who treads on the waves of the sea. This is I am in the flesh. And so the kingdom will come. Are you with me? When, when the kingdom finds good soil, all who touch Jesus are healed. In fact, one scholar I read translated verse 34 as, and all who touch Jesus were thoroughly saved, which is awesome. Okay, Whew. that was a lot of content. Take a deep breath. Before we end, just one more thing here. Let's talk 
a, a bit more about you and I. Um, I was thinking through this passage. It's a great story. I, I honestly appreciate it just for its narrative uniqueness, but more than that, since I am a disciple of Jesus, and I was praying through it every morning this week, and I was thinking about the way that a year or so ago, there was a season in which I was uh, not doing well, and I had journeyed into something that I call the dark place, which is a place I go in my thinking and feeling when I'm just racked with despair and indulgent in it. And I remember one evening in particular, I'd been fighting with uh, my wife, Abby, and I was in agony. She had left because she had a commitment that evening. The kids were asleep, and I just went and sat on my living room floor and began reading from Psalm 69 over and over and over again. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. And I recited that over and over again. And as I was praying, an image came to mind from tonight's story. And there I was kind of sinking as the psalmist had written. And in my mind, in my imagination as I prayed, I saw Jesus before me. And I felt pitiful. I was like, why are you just watching me sink? And then I realized as the image kind of zoomed out that my hand was in Jesus' hand. And I would have sunk all the way like the psalmist was writing, but he had me. He was holding me up. And his expression wasn't frustrated or condescending. It was compassionate. But rather than feel relief, rather than feel comfort, rather than taking solace in this image, I actually hated it. I hated my wailing and crying. I hated my dramatic display. I hated my foolishness. I hated my failure to realize the truth. I hated my wallowing in self-pity. And I realized that at the core of all of it was fear. Fear of despair, fear of insignificance, fear of pain, fear of the, the idea that things won't get better, won't resolve, won't work out. And the words of Jesus came to me then, as they do now in this story, courage, I am don't be afraid. Because the reassurance of Jesus is not a guarantee that the circumstances will change, but the reassurance is the identity of Jesus himself. Yes, Jesus does calm storms. He heals, he redeems, he feeds, he provides. But then there are more storms and more sickness and more failure and more hunger and more need. And the disciples in tonight's story have already seen Jesus calm the storm once. Here's another one. And Jesus doesn't speak comfort by promising, hey, listen, this is the last one I promise. There will be no more storms after this. In fact, the picture is actually a bit strange. It's sort of haunting. The storm is all around them, chaos, darkness, wind, rain, and in the middle of it all, Jesus and his friends. Jesus doesn't cause the storm. He doesn't engineer sickness. He doesn't orchestrate failure. He doesn't make people go hungry. And since Jesus, even though he is I am, doesn't control everything, he doesn't pull all the strings, he doesn't rescue by bringing an end once and for all to storms everywhere. But in the story, he's with them, and the storm does stop for now. So don't miss the intimacy of this picture. Jesus' outrageous claim of divinity is not in a story where, you know, the disciples are afraid for their lives and they call out to an invisible force in heaven, Oh, mighty Yahweh, still these winds. And then, you know, everything dies down. I thought so, you know, that kind of thing. It's actually uh, way messier. It's more personal. It's more intimate. Yahweh comes in the flesh. Take courage. I am. And when Peter calls out, Lord, save me, we read, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. So they're face to face. 
hand in hand on the raging sea. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.